Everyone else, let's turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. This morning I'll be reading from verses 33 through 46, the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine that if I asked you, you could probably tell me of at least one decision in your life that had lasting implications. Whether it was a purchase you made, uh, the decision to begin or to end a particular relationship, a trip you went on, some decision you reached a point where you had options. You could go this way or you could go that way. And you made a choice, and that choice forever affected your life. Well, much could be said about the choice to respond to Jesus. However, I would suggest it's not one choice that we make, but rather an ongoing series, a lifetime of choices, decisions that determine the whole course of your life. Now to understand how that's played out in this story, the options that we are given in the vineyard, we need to zoom out a little bit. And if you're looking at your Bibles, keep them open to Matthew 21. And I want to do a quick survey of the whole chapter which we've been looking at for the past four weeks now. I want to zoom out and see the whole chapter which begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, the crowds shouting, Hosanna to the King, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that, that behold, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. And then, having entered Jerusalem, the capital, he goes up to the temple. And angered by the religion there that is a, a phony or a false or a, a, uh, just a cultural religion that has no heart. A religion of busyness. He calls for true spiritual fruit. And casts out of the temple those whose worship was not true. Those who were misleading others. Those who looked religious on the outside because they were going through the motions, but who had no true faith. 
And then he steps outside of the temple and sees a fig tree that is filled with beautiful green leaves but has no fruit. And so he curses it. And the disciples watch in amazement as it withers before their very eyes. Even the leaves it once had are now gone, taken away because of the lack of fruit. Then when he returns to the temple, some of the leaders approach him and say, by what authority are you doing all this? And he exposes their false intentions in asking that question. And then he tells a parable about two sons who received the same command from their father, one of whom obeyed the command and one who did not. And then Jesus warned these chief priests and these these Pharisees and these leaders, these religious leaders, he warned them that, that if they did not repent and show true fruit, they were just like the fig tree, all show and no substance, and they would be rejected from the kingdom of God. And then in the very next breath, he goes on to give the parable that we're looking at today, talking to the same group of people with the same context in mind. The message of this chapter is clear, my friends. Matthew's point is this, Jesus is King. He is Lord. And how you respond to that truth is the most important question that you or I will ever face. It's not a matter of preference. It's not a matter of culture. It's not a matter of personality. How you respond to Jesus as King, as Lord, determines everything in this life and in the next. In this parable, shows us our options, the options that we face in a vineyard. The first option that we have, the choice we have to make, is we either resist or respect His rule. We either resist His rule or we respect His rule, His authority. To understand why Jesus tells us this story, we have to read Isaiah 5. I'm not going to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 5, but it begins in this way. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. If you were listening when I read Matthew 21, verse 33, that sounds familiar. Jesus began His parable saying in verse 33, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. Jesus is intentionally quoting, pointing to Isaiah's parable. And Isaiah goes on to describe how that vineyard produced no fruit. And in chapter 5, verse 7 of Isaiah, he says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. We live and think and act as if we are the masters of our own lives. And perhaps as masters of our own lives, we will choose to follow the Lord. And we speak and we behave as if to follow the Lord, we're being called upon to surrender. To surrender all the freedom and power and rights that we would otherwise have if we didn't follow Him. The message of Isaiah's song of the vineyard is this. You are not as free as you think yourself to be. None of us is. You are a planted vine. A cultivated, tended vine that someone, the Lord, planted with the intention 
of seeing it bear fruit. You have a purpose. God is the Lord of your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. And God does not come to His vine asking the vine to give up the fruit that otherwise belongs to the vine. No, He comes to what is His own, what He created for His own purposes, what He has a right to, and He demands that we give Him and produce for Him what is rightfully His. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 100, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Because He made us, God is allowed to expect things from us. In fact, it's why He made us. It's why we exist in the first place. We exist. The meaning of life is to be the people that God made us to be. That's why you're on this earth. To make our responsibility in this matter clearer, when Jesus tells the parable, He introduces a twist or, or something that Isaiah didn't put in His. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus said there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. In Isaiah's parable, the, the people of God were the vine. In Jesus' version, it's the ones who live around the vine and are responsible to tend it. Who does the land belong to in the first place? Whose is the vine? It is the master of the vineyard. The legal situation, the relationships were clear in Jesus' day that the tenants, the people living in the vineyard, owed fruit to the master. It was his. C.S. Lewis defends God's authority over us in his own parable. He illustrates it by speaking of a ship, a group of ships in a convoy traveling together and, and how how we would argue, well, if, if I am in a community of other people and I am the captain of a ship, what does it matter what I do on my ship as long as I don't hurt the other ships? As long as I stay in my lane and don't hurt anyone else, I can do whatever I want with my ship, can't I? And Lewis argues, does it not make a great difference whether his ship is his own property or not? Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind and body, or only a tenant responsible to the real landlord. If somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. We have responsibility. We owe the one who made us. But what do these tenants do? They resist his authority. Verses 35 through 36, they took his servants who came to collect what was owed and they beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. And again, he sent more servants and they did the same to them. And finally, he sends his son, his personal representative, and they murder him. Verse 38, when they saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. If we kill him, We'll inherit what he has. They're delusional. Because there's no way in any legal system that it plays out that way. That if I kill you, I get your inheritance. You can resist the authority of the master all you want, but it doesn't change reality. 
killing the son would not give them control. It would just put them in jail or worse. But we resist. We have instructions from the Lord on how we are to live, on the fruit that He expects to see from us. Instructions guiding us how to shape our heart. What to love. How to work. How to speak. What to value. What to prioritize. Do we heed these instructions? Do we give the landlord of our lives the fruit that He expects from us? I don't say that to scare anyone, but I do encourage you to look inward as the Apostle Paul did in writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13. He said to Christians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Test? No one said there would be a test. Well, the test is the fruit. Paul said Jesus Christ is in you. And if He is indeed in you, then there will be evidence of that. There will be fruit. There will be a gradually changing life. Selfishness turning to love. Despair becoming joy. Anxiety giving way to peace. A demanding spirit being replaced with patience. Mocking words transformed into kindness. Seeing others as enemies being replaced by goodness. Trusting in yourself being replaced by faith. Harshness becoming gentleness. Impulsiveness and being ruled by your desires. Instead, turning into self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. These things happen as you dwell in Christ. As you fill yourself with His Word. As you delight in being with His people. As you are taught by the worship that we share together. You can resist His rule. You can resist the right that He has to command you. You can try to live as if your life is yours to control. And you can make your plans and goals and live for something else, but your resistance is futile. Even the ones that Jesus was condemning with this parable, the ones He told it to, they knew how it would end. In verse 41, they said, when He comes back, He's going to put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give Him the fruit in their seasons. God will bless and indeed give His kingdom to those who respect His rule, to those who produce and give Him the fruit that is His. That's one of the options we face to either resist or respect His rule over us. Another choice that we have, another option in the vineyard, is to either reject or to respond to His mercy. Something you need to be careful not to miss in this parable is the way that it gives us a picture of the incredible patience of God. Without the patience of God, there would be no salvation. We talked about that last week, how how God allowed sins that were committed in the past to go unpunished. And how he, he lets us reject Him at first and resist His will and turn Him away. And He is patient, so patient with us. God's patience is an expression of His mercy. So let's see here the merciful patience of God in this story. Verses 34 and 35 again. When the season for fruit drew near, He sent His servants to the tenants to get His fruit. 
And they take his servants and they beat one, they kill another, they stone another, and they, they keep on doing this. If someone owed you a large sum of money and you sent someone to collect that debt and they beat that person, what's your response going to be? Are you going to say, let me send someone else and see if it works better the next time? And then they kill that person. You say, well, let me try again. Let me send, let me give them a chance again, another chance, yet another chance to respond the way they ought to. But no, you wouldn't respond that way. You'd call the police. But this master is patient and gracious and sends them opportunity after opportunity. In the parable here, the servants of the master represent the prophets, the men and the women in the history of God's people whom God sent to warn His people and remind them of their obligation to obey God. That's what prophets were. The job of a prophet was, was not to predict the future, except to say, if you keep disobeying God, bad things are going to happen. The prophets came to remind God's people of God's commands, but they were usually rejected. And sometimes they were persecuted and killed as verse 36 says, again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they still did the same to them. The danger of evil and the patience of God is that if we are not caught and immediately punished in our wrongdoing, we will continue to practice evil, won't we? Like, like hypothetically, if we lived somewhere where there was a bridge with a speed limit of 35 miles an hour, and you repeatedly see others drive 55, even 65 miles an hour over that bridge with impunity. They never get caught. Are they not tempted to continue in that? Because there is no punishment. Or like a child who keeps sneaking candy again and again because mom and dad didn't catch me the first time or the second time or the third time, so it must be okay if I'm not getting punished until the day that you rest the bridge and see the police waiting at the bottom or until mom and dad knock on the door and see the piles of candy wrappers all around you. I'm not making that up. It happens. We are warned against having this attitude towards our own sin in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God simply because he hasn't punished you? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. God delays judgment because He is merciful. He's giving us time to change. I just saw an article uh, just this morning as I was scrolling through the news. Uh, an unbelievable thing. A, uh, a, a Christian woman who is involved in a, a very sinful industry let me say and she argued that it it's okay because she asked god and he didn't tell her to stop because god is patient and doesn't stop us from our sin do we presume that we will escape judgment no his patience isn't to allow us to continue in what destroys us his patience is to give us time to repent to you who still stand far off and do not follow Jesus, now is the day of mercy. The day of the patience of the Lord. 
And that day will not last forever. In the parable, in verse 40, Jesus asks, When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The owner will return, and there will be a reckoning for all who did not respond to his mercy. The merciful patience of the Lord came through the warnings of the prophets, but most fully through the Son. Verse 37, finally he sent his Son to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. The son is different. He's not just another messenger. He's not a servant. He is the beloved of the father. He represents and has the authority of the father. And in mercy, the owner of the vineyard sends his son. Amazingly, no matter what they had done before to the other messengers, they can still accept the son and respond and repent. And how they respond to the son defines how they will relate to the owner. If they receive the Son, then they have received the word of the owner. But if they reject Him, verse 39, they, throw, they take Him and throw Him out of the vineyard and kill Him. A few days after He told this parable, Jesus, the Son of God, would be taken out of the city and killed. In mercy and in love, God sends His Son to us. His Son. Colossians 1, we are told that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in John 14, 9, Jesus Himself tells His disciples, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. If we reject the Son, we are rejecting the Father. By rejecting His messengers and ultimately His Son, all that is left is judgment. In Romans 2, after, after being told that God's kindness leads us to repentance, the verse goes on, and in verse 5, it goes on to say, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's almost as if, as if every time that, that you went over that bridge at 65 miles an hour, just, just completely ignoring the speed limit. It's as if instead of just being patient, it's as if the police recorded it each and every time and added up a penalty to your account every time until the day when judgment came and it all came due. Unless you repent. The kindness of the merciful patience of the Lord is just storing up wrath for those who will not repent. He will graciously and quickly forgive those who, who receive the Son. But for those who do not, all that God has been patient through, all that he has, he has waited and looked aside at, comes due in judgment. And so you have an option to either reject His mercy and the warnings He gives and the Son He sends, or to respond to His mercy. Sadly, verses 45 and 46 show us the path of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders who heard this parable. When they, when they heard His parables, they perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. And rather than repent, rather than say, that's us! How, how, how could we have done that? Instead, they seek to arrest Him. And they only hold back because they're afraid of the crowds. There's a third option we see in this, in this text. And that is that we will either regret or rejoice in His plan. 
First, we saw we'll either resist or, or, uh, or receive His rule. We will either reject or respond to His mercy. And lastly, we will either regret His plan when it is complete or we will rejoice in it. Jesus, the Son who would be rejected, finishes the parable and then quotes another piece of Old Testament Scripture in verse 42. He says, have you never read in Scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118, a psalm that should be familiar because we already saw it earlier in Matthew 21. Psalm 118, 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what was being shouted when Jesus entered the city not long ago. But Jesus quotes a part of the psalm that speaks of rejection. The stone that the builders rejected. As they're looking through the stones they could use, they see this stone and they're like, no. This rock, this thing is worthless to us. We're not going to use it in the building that we're putting together. The psalm says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. We don't know enough about ancient Hebrew architecture to know which one this word means. It's either the stone that holds it all together at the top or it's the foundational stone that it's all built upon the cornerstone. Either way, it is an essential piece of the architecture. And it's a piece that was rejected. That which humanity in its wisdom and its self-rule has rejected has become the most important piece of God's plan. These verses are so important to the early church that they actually pop up again in, in Acts 4 and in 1 Peter 2 that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus was rejected. The son was taken outside the vineyard and killed. Does that mean that God's plan was then off track? Not by any means. Verse 43, I'm sorry, verse 42 says, this is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing. The Lord did this. In Acts chapter 4, the new church, under violent persecution, lifted up their voice and prayed these words. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, those who rejected Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The stone that the builders rejected, the Lord planned that. Jesus was rejected, persecuted, killed, but God was in control the whole time. This is the Lord's doing, it says. Now, it's one thing to say it's the Lord's doing. It's another to finish verse 42. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We rejoice in the plan of God. We celebrate it, even if our celebration at time feels premature. Even if we're only rejoicing by faith. Even if we're looking at the way God's plan is playing out, and we're saying, God, I think you need to get your act together. Because it doesn't seem like your kingdom is going to be victorious. It doesn't seem like you're in control. But this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. We rejoice in the rejection of God's Son. We rejoice in the rejection that we share in as His people. It's marvelous in our eyes. Those who do not rejoice will find themselves in a different position, however. Verse 44 
the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The rejected stone, if we do not look to it as as our cornerstone, as our foundation, if that's not our response to the plan of God, we're not free to just ignore it then and go on our way. Instead, we will stumble over it and be broken. Jesus is actually in this verse 44 quoting or referring to two different further Old Testament passages. He's just drenching his, his, his speech in Scripture. The first one is from Isaiah 8. Jesus, uh, Isaiah says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Those who, re- who reject Jesus do not just go on their merry way and live their happy lives. They trip over that stone and they are broken on it. If you don't build your life on the stone that is Jesus, you stumble and you fall and you are broken. The option of ignoring Him, of getting along fine without Him, that option is not given to you. Why? Because of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What? In the book of Daniel, and this is the second reference that Jesus is making there in verse 44. In the book of Daniel, the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, which is then interpreted by the prophet Daniel. And in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant statue representing various mighty kingdoms that will arise in the earth in the centuries to come. The, The Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, even mighty Rome, and this statue made of different things represents all those different nations. But then Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees one single stone, not crafted by human hand. And that single stone comes rocketing out of the sky, hits the statue, and crushes it. And then that stone grows and becomes an everlasting mountain. If I had a dream like that, I would question what I ate the night before. But the explanation we are given through Daniel is this. Daniel 2, verse 44 through 45. He explains that in the days of those kings, those many mighty nations, the the God of heaven will set up another kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. Jesus warned those who did not follow Him. In verse 44, He says, When it, the stone, Jesus, when it falls on anyone, as it comes rocketing down, it will crush him. Jesus does not come into our world and into our lives to add a little wisdom, to add a little hope, to add a little morality, to add a little culture, to add a little community. Jesus comes as a comet to smash and to destroy whatever is not his kingdom. And when that falls on anyone, it will Crush them. This is the plan of God. This is the Lord's doing. And we rejoice in it. Or else we regret. Those outside of God's plan, those not loyal to Him, will find that they resist 
His rule. They reject His mercy. The plan of the Lord holds only regret for them. Because they are building a kingdom apart from Him. A kingdom that will be crushed by that stone. So those are, those are the options that you face in the vineyard of the Lord. The choices that we're called upon to make, I've presented to you as three choices, but they are all really one choice. Because all three choices revolve around the same call, and the call is this, receive the Son. And don't any of you tune out when you hear that, please. Because the call to receive the Son is not just a call to those who are apart from Christ, those who are not yet saved. We beg and we plead, receive Jesus. That is true. But receiving the Son is not just that. It's an ongoing thing your whole life long. If we receive Him, then we respect the rule of God. Because receiving Jesus is not just about saying a prayer It's not a box that you check on a census form. Receiving Jesus means accepting His way. Following Him. That's how you receive Him. Repentance is not a moment. Repentance is a path that we walk daily. Turning from our direction and moving in God's way. So receiving Jesus means respecting God's rule, God's authority, God's commands. And if we receive the Son, we are also responding to God's mercy. The Son He sent to call us away from our rebellion and into the life He designed for us. And so, even I speak to believers this morning, those who have been with Jesus for many years and have received Him, continue to receive Him, continue to respond to His mercy, continue to recognize that though you sin, He is patient still with you and gives you time and opportunity to repent. And as we receive the Son, we rejoice in the plan of God. Because Jesus is the plan of God. Colossians 1, God reveals that His plan is through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The Son in the parable that was sent to the vineyard He didn't need to die to accomplish His purpose. If if only they would have listened to Him, they could have turned and given the fruits and all would have been well. But the Son of God, God's Son, had to die. There was no other way. Because the peace that He brings is only possible if He Himself shoulders the weight of our rebellion. There will be justice for those who rebel, which is all of us. And so that son, the true son, must die in our place. And dying, he rises again, as we just saw in Colossians 1, in order to reconcile us to the Father and all of creation to its Creator. And because that is done, because he has done it, the great work of bringing the kingdom of God to a world in crisis, that is a task that will soon be finished. And we rejoice in that. That is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Let us consider the options that we have, the choices we are called to make. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, to continue to receive the Son this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank You 
that you are so patient and so merciful. And you come to us again and again, giving us opportunity to repent. This morning, we repent of our rejection of you. We repent of the ways that we have looked to our own path and not to you. We repent of the ways that we have have refused to give you the fruit that is yours. We pray that your Holy Spirit, which dwells each and every one of your children, would produce in us the fruit that you desire, and that we would delight in that and rejoice in that, and in doing so, receive the kingdom. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.